You're listening to the Inverse Podcast, where we explore how the scriptures can turn our world upside down. Or how it can be weaponized to uphold the status quo. I'm Drew Hart. And I'm Jared McKenna, and this is Inverse. Hi everyone, it's Julie Kerr here. I'm the producer of Inverse Podcast. I'm just popping in your ears briefly to let you know that if you listen to Inverse, this is simply our welcome mat to a wider community of people from all over the world. We connect throughout the week with Liberating Sunday School on the weekend that tends to focus on Indigenous texts and Subversive Seminary during the week which focuses on anti-racism formation. We also have an advanced anti-racism group who are currently studying the Africana Bible, a reading of the scriptures from the Vantage point of Africa and the African diaspora. We record these episodes in community and we'd love to invite you into this space where you can have a chance to ask questions and to participate by being part of our Patreon community. If you're one of our patrons, you can listen to extended conversations with extra questions included such as this. How the word itself is never in scripture. It's Gehenna for the most part. Most uses of either Gehenna or Hades. There's no concept of hell in the Old Testament at all in the Hebrew scriptures. There's no concept of hell in Paul at all. And I don't really think there's a concept of eternal conscious torment with Jesus either. Because when you're talking to Hena, you're talking about where all the bodies were, were burnt up. First of all, it was where people sacrificed their children in the fire to Molech in that valley. It's Gehenna is a valley outside the city of Jerusalem. Um, and Later on, it was where they dumped all the bodies that were burnt up after certain wars. And then later on, and this is contested by some, but later on then, in the time of Jesus, it was a garbage heap, a garbage dump, where people would go dump all their garbage and it would burn continually. There were maggots all over. It was outside the walls, which is another place you used to not ever want to go. And so you'd go outside the walls to dump your garbage and it would be a horrible, ooh, you know, dumping your garbage out there. And so Jesus is using these, it was like the outer darkness right outside the walls. And so Jesus is using these um, sayings hyperbolically in order to shock the people into listening to what he's saying. And they knew he was talking about the garbage heap outside in the Valley of Gehenna. They knew the history of that valley. And from my perspective, at least, they never would have thought he was talking about some sort of eternal conscious torment. So that's just a little example of what you'll get if you're part of our Patreon community. All the information is in our show notes. Make sure you follow, rate and review this episode in iTunes. But for now, enjoy the following episode. I'm excited to introduce our guest for Inverse Podcast today. It is Scott Erickson. He is a touring painter, performance speaker and creative curate who mixes autobiography, mythology and aesthetics to create arts and moments that speak to our deepest experiences. He is the co-author of Prayer, 40 Days of Practice, and May It Be So, the author of Honest Advent, a spiritual director to brave women and men, and a professional dishwasher for his food blogging wife. Scott lives in Austin, Texas, and is most loved by his wife, Holly, and his children, Anders, Elsa, and Jones. Scott, we're just so grateful to have you on Inverse Podcast. Welcome. Thank you. I I am pumped to be here. This, this is a real oh. treat because um, like this is a podcast that I actually is it listen to. So I feel like I've made it because <laughs> like I, <laughs> so it's great. 
Well, you, you heard it here first. Scott, there we go. Scott's, <laughs> Scott's endorsement. Um, we're very glad that you are the one person who's listening to us. Because we, we wondered, who, 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 who is that? Who they say there's one out there, and so now we know who it is. <laughs> oh, That's my gosh. I was just we're, listening to the Brian Zahn interview today. Oh, yeah. yeah. Brother BZ, what a good yeah, fellow. Yeah, BZ. Yep, mm-hmm. yep. Awesome. Well, Scott, um, we would love uh, to hear um, what passage you've chosen from Scripture that you'd like to read for us. What, what, what passage have you picked that you'd like to, to start our time off together with? Yeah, um, I have a passage... Uh, it's it's a very long story at the end of Genesis about Joseph, and I picked a couple places where he cries because I'm a crier and I like the crying parts of the Bible. I was oh, telling you er- earlier, my favorite verse is Jesus wept, uh, <laughs> but that feels I'm, I'm I think Brian already gave that one, so I thought I'd do something different. Uh, so. Uh, what's happening, this story is very long, many, many chapters, many of you know, um, but what happens is that he, Joseph, is interacting with his brothers that he hasn't seen in years, and they don't recognize him, and he sees his youngest brother, Benjamin, for the first time, and in, uh, so I'm just going to read a couple places, first in chapter 43, uh, verse 30, when he sees uh, Benjamin, it says that Joseph hurried out for he was deeply stirred over his brother and he sought a place to weep and he entered his chamber and wept there. Um, so, and then he, he was like able to wash his face and came out, he controlled himself and they did a whole thing. And then uh, he sends like his brothers away with some food, but he plants a chalice in there. There's this like, you know, he said, she said, whatever. They come all, they all come back to the palace. They all think they're going to die. And then this happens in chapter 45. It says, then Joseph could could not control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried, have everyone go out from me. So there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly, the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard of it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. And then Joseph said to his brothers, please come closer. And they came closer and he said, I'm your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into into Egypt. Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. And uh, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance and so on and so forth. And they have a big party. Um, So that's the passage I chose. Am I supposed to expound like why I like that passage (laughs) or do you ask me that? We'll, we'll, we'll get, get back contained. to that. Oh, we'll get yeah, back that's to right. it. We'll, we'll, we'll get back to that. Yeah, yeah. But thank you for sharing that. Yep. This okay. is classic bait and switch. <laughs> <laughs> it's good storytelling. Good podcasting. <laughs> um, Scott, so many people know you from uh, your beautiful artwork, which I don't know if you know this, but my initial trainings were in fine arts at university. Um, yeah. uh, sculpture was um, my medium. And uh, I love your work. I, I see hints of um, uh, Magritte and um, uh, Marc Chagall, and I, I see these influences coming through. But before we get to any of that, we want to go uh, back into your story. Um, and the, before you were uh, weeping on canvases, this narrative that shows up in your work all the time, um, uh, the, the biblical narrative, when do you first remember encountering the Bible? When was your first kind of uh, introduction 
to the scriptures? Well, my first introduction to the scriptures that I recall was the illustrations of the scriptures. When I was a kid in Sunday school, uh, <laughs> pre-screens, uh, we had like flannel graphs, uh, which was Come like the cut, cut out shapes and stuff. And they would tell a story. I remember my grandmother leading some Sunday schools and doing that. We had these like comic books or I don't know, handouts that were created. So uh, the, the stories were first shared with me not like through words like they weren't they didn't just give us like a text they gave mm -hmm. us pictures these like cartoons and uh so the first place the scripture started with me was illustrations and i've thought about this a lot actually that and we'll get into where i think the visual helps us in our spiritual formation but it's interesting that we give imagery up, up until maybe like middle school, you know, the end of primary school, and then we stop giving visuals. So the visuals that are informing a lot of our ideas or what these stories look like are cartoons that we created for children. And I, mm -hmm. think, there's, I think there's something there that needs to be looked at. I don't think it's bad. I just think it's, it, it's kept us kind of limited on uh, what we think these stories can mean or what they can do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so good. And it is, I mean, it's really fascinating to think about, um, I mean, one's faith from what you're exposed to at those early ages are so formative and powerful, right? Um, mm -hmm. and they can become contro controlling images for folks. In fact, they say many folks, um, that just remains the building blocks. And so we've got to be very thoughtful about how we engage and think and introduce people even through images um, to faith. I'm curious, as you think about those, you know, images on those boards, those cartoon figures, and maybe other ways that you were introduced to the scriptures, like, would you have said that the scriptures were, were uh, liberating or oppressive or something else? Like, how were you, what was, what was the messaging behind the teachings and what were you experiencing? And yeah. I mean, I think I look, so I have small children, so I sometimes feel like my memory has been obliterated. So like, <laughs> if I think back to my life, I'm like, well, it's just a fog. Um, I actually really enjoyed my childhood and the faith communities I grew up in. I, uh, even though I've, like many, have gone through the deconstruction, reconstruction, or Jurassic has a better, the restoration of something that was already beautiful. Uh, I, I, I really enjoyed the, the community I was in was great, and I loved the youth groups I was in, or or that youth group, and um, so the the scriptures were always like this. Um, I guess at the time I perceived it was like, this is this ancient story, um, but we're still talking about it because it has something to do with our lives now. And that was my perception of it. I do remember, because you guys, we, we had talked a little bit about before, and I know the model of this podcast, I was kind of thinking of like, when did I, when, when could I remember like engaging with the written word myself once? And this story kept coming to mind, which is I remember in like high school, I was reading, um, I was going through the Bible and I uh, got into judges and I was reading about Samson. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think you're present, sometimes scripture can be presented in a way like, these are the heroes of faith. 
Like all of these people are really amazing Christians. And I remember having this moment as a teenager going, so Samson's like a good guy. Like, uh, so he's, he sleeps with prostitutes. He, uh, he like killed all these people. Uh, that's, that's Christian, you know, like I, it was kind or, of, or, I remember that ties, first... ties foxes together and like sets whole fields. Uh, yeah, I'm like, that's the one that always the, got me. I'm like, I mean, destroys the that's crop messed up. up, but it's pretty creative. Yeah. Yeah. Like catching all those foxes, like, and oh, was he holding, did he like make a pen to keep yeah. him in while he went the rest? <laughs> I don't know. Had he watched other people tie foxes together? Did none like, of the foxes, that... yeah, did none of them bite his hand while he was tying their tails <laughs> together? I don't know. Uh, there's, there's a lot of details that we want to know. Uh, but yeah, no, I just remember that was, I, that was a, a memory of, of an encounter of going, I think this is a lot different than just the kind of like all of these people are good or all of these people are your examples and um and 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 that has led me and you know i i think i think the stories are amazing and i think the you know obviously if you've spent time in it you're like oh this isn't about perfect people this is about just <laughs> weird human beings throughout history yeah. going <laughs> there's a lot of weirdos <laughs> in the bible um, <laughs> which makes me feel like there's a place for me so that's, that's right. yeah <laughs> Scott, can we? Um, well, yeah, you just go, before, you go. Just, I'm curious about because I mean, you didn't mention that you've gone through a process of, you know, reconstructing or, as Georgia says, you know, restoration. I'm curious about what out of that did you find? Like, what has been a meaningful experience in terms of moving towards the more liberative faith? Yeah. Yeah. Um, kind of. Uh, I mean, not abnormal. Uh, maybe even a bit cliche in my mid late thirties. I just um, it what I how I would describe it now is that the, the my spiritual practices, meaning the way that I practice my faith, not only just in my deeds but in my like thought processes and perspectives, stopped working for me. I think I had lived long enough that I knew life was not black and white, but very gray and mysterious. I'd, I'd had a number of friends die at young ages mm -hmm. and was kind of in that spot where I understood that um, death comes from, for us all. And usually it takes the best of us too early. Um, you know, cause when jerks die, you're like, that makes sense. But when like the best of you dies, you're like, I, I don't even know what this is anymore. And um, I, I think I, I, I started to see that, and I'm not critiquing the community I grew up in, but the culture I grew up in was very obsessed with like afterlife. And, um, and I, I just got to a spot where I was like, if there's something after this, I don't know. And nobody really knows. And, uh, I'm not in charge of it and none of us are in charge of it. So does this thing have anything to say about life now? Um, and it turns out it does. And like many other people, uh, I heard Father Richard Rohr, Franciscan Friar Richard Rohr, talk about um, Franciscanism. And what he, I think in his book, Eager to Love, he, he describes Franciscan practices. He sums them up like this. He says, uh, this, the physical world is the doorway to the spiritual world. And the spiritual world is much, much larger. 
And what that, how that impacted me was it was saying, I, I think I had learned or I thought what I thought I was supposed to think was like, oh no, we just can't wait to get out of this physical world until we can get to the real world. And what the Franciscan practices were saying was like, there's no way to access this larger reality except through this reality. This is the doorway to that larger reality. And and we, we can see this through what Jesus says, like somehow mysteriously, he says, when you give somebody water to drink, you're giving it to me. When you give somebody to eat it, something to eat, who's hungry, you're feeding me there. It's in the process of this act of love it, in this, in this actual doing in this physical world that this portal doorway opening to this larger, deeper reality, maybe what Paul Tillich says, like the depth of reality that begins to open up and we go, oh, there's something much more deeper behind all of this. Um, and so that invited me to, you know, I, 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 that invited me to be here, to be present, to, to find God in the life I was living, not going, I can't wait till I see God after I'm dead. Not that I really thought that, but, you know, I had a lot of end times training growing up, like, and I, and <laughs> even though at some point I moved away from those communities and I really was like, didn't really believe that I, I started understanding that it had imprinted on me in some subconscious ways that I needed to, to, to like bring about, like to bring bring up like it, it made me never really think about the world 200 years from now it never made me actually think I was going to have to die one day um and I know these are kind of bummer subjects but I'm an Enneagram four so what are you going to get right. that's what you're going to get uh <laughs> Dude, you, you chose passage about weeping the fact that you're a four was made clear <laughs> which as a fellow four yeah I'm very excited about great it was great yeah there's a reason I chose that passage um so I um yeah, it, and and I think in a you know during that time, I, like I, I I made a performance talk uh, about this called "We Are Not Trouble Guests." It's a line from a David White poem, and I I had this kind of it, it's about the gift of your existential crisis, meaning like, and my premise for the talk is to go through like what happens when everything begins falling apart and stops working for it, and at the end I don't give a lot of answers, but I. I think my premise for the whole thing was like, maybe the maybe maybe it is the God that you lost faith in is the one who wrecked it all. Maybe the, like like when you said God grow my faith, God was like okay and knocked it all over, and <laughs> was like we have to make space for something bigger, and the only way to do that is by kind of taking out what you've constructed. Um, and 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 I I don't I, I do say in that talk I do say like. Um, I won't say that God gave me my darkest times because that's too easy. It, it's too easy to be like, well, I almost thought about killing myself and <laughs> that was the Lord. You know, like that isn't like when we oh touch upon, when yeah. we touch upon like deep existential crisis and depression and suicidal ideation, those are very frightening places to be. And it mm -hmm. doesn't help to go, well, you know, God led you here. Uh, but I will say on the other side of those difficult places, um, I somehow it was um, it was the darkness that taught me how to see the light. It was sorrow that taught me how to know joy. Um, it was disbelief and the loss of belief that helped me find belief again. Hmm. And um, and somehow, in a way I don't understand, I would say 
there was there was grace in all of that. And uh, yeah, so the, that's for me, that was a bit of my process. I mean, there's I've, I've obviously hit on some really tough subject matter and, and, and things like that. But uh, part of it was like I part of my uh, deconstruction or things I, I like worked at a church. I, pro- I had like a de- I professionally like burned out, like not had a psychotic break, but I just I like burned out so bad that I, I couldn't function anymore and I had to leave and and I went to a couple of years of therapy while I worked at another job because they actually had healthcare and um, and, um, and it was through that process that I I, I you know that those I had to get in touch with um, like what is this and and who am I and what are my capabilities and where is God in all of this and yeah. so and 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 I remember the moment my depression lifted which had been there for about a couple of years and a friend of mine told me she said I don't know for some people someday sometimes the depression just one day you wake up and it's not there anymore and I remember the morning I woke up and it wasn't there anymore and I looked back over my last two years and I and you know in my mind's eye I, I, it's like I looked at my hands and I was like where did I get all this treasure and and it had it it, it was like, I, I had all that, all that, all that, all that, all that I, take two, you <laughs> feel free to edit out the all eyes. I said four times in a row, all, all that I had gone through, I had seen that it had brought about um, a kind of fruit in my life uh, that was a, a renewed faith. And that was uh, surprising to me and wonderful. Scott, how how can we edit out when this is the stuff we have to work with, right? This is it's great. We'll, we'll leave it all in, um, mate. I, I want to ask you in in just a moment about um, this passage and uh, helping us read it in ways that turns the world upside down. But I, I'm very aware, as you might be as well, that um, uh, it, you and I. Um, on several continents have been asked to speak to creatives and artists um, with a faith background. And sometimes talks in those kind of settings um, portray the arts and um, creatives generally as um, there is an inherent link between uh, a a liberative way of being and the arts, Mm. Um, which I would love to believe like, you know, creativity is, uh, you know, ultimately liberative and th- there's a sense of that which and then I, I think about um, some of the the artists and some of my best friends in the world are artists um, uh, and uh, some of the famous artists I've met um, but even people outside of those who might have direct okay one of my big influences in art school was Damien Hirst um, oh yeah, famous mm-hmm. for his like um, sharks in Flamildehyde, cut in half, and mm-hmm. um, uh, his his skull, human skull that has yeah. um, diamonds all over it, and really mm-hmm. provocative um, uh, pieces. He he pursued a kid that he had a vendetta against for like over a decade, um, and the kid was like sixteen old years old initially, uh, and I was like, oh, what's what's it? oh, I mean like. Um, uh, Degas um, ha- had a, um, a strong anti-Semitism. Um, mm. We could talk about Picasso and the fact that he was a raging misogynist, like just yeah. outrageous and abusive. Francis Bacon um, yeah. was in torture. Like, um, 
uh, let alone Wagner and the um, uh, fascist kind of. So I, I mentioned all that to ask, do you think what 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 people am I abusing? Is this like what are you? <laughs> Scott, this what is actually you? an intervention. This is an intervention. Right. That's right. <laughs> what dysfunction <laughs> do you have, Scott? <laughs> um, I, I wanted to ask uh, around um, uh, creativity and its power um, to liberate, particularly personally, but often how that stops at certain borders and ask, have, have you thought much around um, do artistic disciplines? Because I mean, you spend hours mm. uh, meditating on um, a particular image, like in terms of a, a religious practice, um, you're engaging in some of the most ancient work that human beings have ever done in, mm -hmm. in creating um, uh, for expression. Um, I would love to hear you reflect on both, yes, creativity and liberation, but also the shadow side and how creatives we can sometimes hide in that work. That's a great question. Uh, I, yeah, and I don't know if I've ever been asked that in like this kind of context, but I, I've definitely thought about it. Um, are, are you glad I didn't set it up as like, Scott, Hitler went to art school what about yeah. <laughs> Oh my gosh. He didn't get into art school like seven times. And uh, have you seen some... any of his paintings? No, no, I haven't. Mate, you should, uh, I'll send you like, they're actually awful. <laughs> <laughs> I don't doubt it. Um, uh, a friend of mine, yeah, he was telling me he was somebody in a book that somebody was surmising, like if he would have just got into art school, things would have been a lot different. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, so I grew up in a kind of a segment of American Christianity that, mm, I don't know, often this is what they would say about the arts. They would say Christian artists should be making the best art because they're connected to the creator of everything. Who's the best artist. I would hear that commonly. Um, but that formula doesn't work. Like I, I, I see no evidence for that unless Radiohead is like deeply liturgical, which they kind of are uh, like they uh, like, it's not true. And it's, it's, and I had to, I, I've thought about this where I, I've said, well, does being a person of faith really matter in being an art, at least in what you make? And I don't think it does. Um, but I do think what uh, I do think that the the love of the of the giver of everything, the love of Jesus, uh, I do think that what that does is it helps you on the process of creating from identity versus creating for identity. Hmm. I think, and I and I think that what being a a, a, a believer and a and a receiver of God's grace, it helps you on the path to not destroy yourself. Um, Cause I think what happens on this creative path is there's a lot of self-destruction on it. And we yeah. can see that through a lot of creative heroes who take their own lives or who get into these um, very destructive um, activities, expressions, habits. Um, and so uh, I think ultimately like 
we're, what we're trying to do is our, we're trying to uh, create something that then gives us our identity, that then gives us our meaning. And uh, I, I think through, through that process, like my, my burnout was kind of that process. I just, I burned out and I couldn't work anymore. And I was like, well, who am I if I can't make this stuff? Because the, for me, it was that identity. And then I had to, I, I, it's like I went down into this deeper spot where I, I met the giver of my existence and we had to talk about who I was. And, and I've heard it said on the other side where people are like, well, God's got to be your identity and then it'll be all better. I'm like, I, well, I don't even really know what that means. Uh, <laughs> like an invisible deity, like is my identity? What does that mean? But like, I think, I think what we're getting to is like, who am I? Where does these things come from? That's all I can speak to. I, I do. Mm. I, I, I haven't ever really been like a famous artist on that level uh, to to know what the, you know, from the documentaries or the things I've read, it just sounds like uh, even a friend of mine who's been pretty successful in the gallery world, we were talking and he's just like, it's just shallow and it's people mm -hmm. just trying to find some significance in these things and all this money and stuff. And he's just like, it's really actually lame to get into it. And, um, and I, I've never really been in that. So I, I couldn't speak to that, but I, I do think like, like here, here's, let me tell a story. That's the best way I know how is that I got invited to speak at this Christian arts conference by SIVA, which is Christians of visual arts, great organization. Um, this is like six years ago in Grand Rapids, Michigan. It was at Calvin college. I got, I was like on a panel, but I was there for the whole conference and I was sitting there at an arts conference and it was just like art professor after art professor, just getting up and reading a piece of paper, like their dissertation about why this was so important. And at some point I just was like looking around and I was like, I'm sorry, is this an arts conference? Where are the weirdos? Like, where is the like Doc Brown from Back to the Future, who's just like, hi, I made all this stuff in my garage, oh, thanks, you know? Cause that's the people I know. Like I'm a, I'm a haunted person. I'm an artist because I'm a haunted person. Like every day images come to me and they're like, make me. And I'm like, I can't, I'm driving right now. I'll get in an accident. And they're like, make me, make me or we'll go away. And I'm like, fine. And I like pull over and I pull out my sketch pad. And I, and I'm just here to like release the haunting. Like that is, I have come to terms with like this kind of haunting and stuff. Um, but it, but it was in that moment where I was like, uh, for this, this thing, I was like, yeah, we're spending so much time trying to prove to everybody that this is important, that we're missing on the magic of this haunting or this, or isn't that why we're all here is like, we're all kind of haunted and partaking in this rhythm, this dance of creativity. And that moment actually helped me understand why I felt kind of alienated in church. I was like, oh, this is actually how I feel about church a bit. I feel like mm. I'm going to this place that's constantly telling us all how important it is and how it's got the truth. And it's, you guys, the most important thing, guys. And, 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 and it kind of missed that it's like, hey, aren't we all here? Because in some ways we're a little haunted, like the hound of heaven got us at some point or the, that spirit kept nagging us. And I'm just like trying to figure out what this haunting is. Is this the community I can talk about my haunting, you know? And, and, and I, when I look at the scriptures, I go, oh yeah, no, I'm in the right place. This is a, this is a, this is about a bunch of other haunted weirdos who are trying to make sense of 
God interacting in their life and it, where they found themselves. And um, so I, I maybe skirted a little bit from the the uh, the abuse no, no, no. mentality of artists, but like uh, there is this kind of haunting and and eccentricity that I think is um, people are trying to deal with or find healing with. Um, and they're trying to find it in what they do, and it 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 can't be solved in that. Mm-hmm. I, I I actually this this happened again when um and I I have a I don't really talk about this anymore in that talk, but uh, most recently for me this got called out when Anthony Bourdain killed himself because mm-hmm. I it, Anthony Bourdain I don't want to be a chef, but Anthony Bourdain represented to me and a lot of my friends who are makers he represented kind of the goal for us, which is we would unabashedly be ourselves. And by being ourselves, that would bring us, you know, fame, wealth, success, travel, kind of uh, looks like a great life. And yet, and I don't know what was going on with him. And I, and I don't know what was in his head. And I I can't, you know, I can't say, but for him at some, some, at least what he said is like, I don't even want to be me. And I, and I remember being in this parking lot in Boise, Idaho, when I found out and I was just like, well, if he doesn't want to be him, then what do I think this is all going to do? What, what, what do I, what lack do I think this is all going to fill if it didn't fill it for him? And again, I think it's that, it's that deeper identity piece that comes through this life with the spirit, this life with a living God or the giver of our existence. And now, so now I feel like instead of that, that has been a process for me, but I, I, and look, I'm, I'm no, I'm nobody's saint, but like, I, I do think I, I create more from an identity than for an identity. A big part of my practice as an artist is I'm a listener. I, 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 like we were talking before, I legitimately was on that carpet praying for a while this morning because like my, my work is to, I just, at least where the the point I'm at now, and that might change, but I know like what I'm supposed to be a part of now is being a listener and a receiver and then create that. And I, I am always like, what, what is next? What should I pay attention to? What should come into the world? How can I, how can I be an offering? What can I offer to this thing? And I have some very specific things that I'd like to create that I, that I feel uniquely asked to do. And so, um, but it's less about, oh, this is going to finally get me to that place. It's, it's more about obedience that I, that is genuine, genuinely where I want to um, work from. And yeah. Yeah. Scott, um, we'd love to give you the opportunity to uh, return to the passage that was uh, the bait at the beginning and just kind of walk us through how you found yourself and, uh, uh, found a place to be that isn't the pressure of producing to be. And yeah. um, uh, w- would you talk to us a little about why you chose this passage and uh, how it could help us read the scriptures to turn our world upside down? Yeah. Um, I, uh, one of my muses as, um, as a person who's interested in the Christian tradition in the, in the Holy Scriptures is uh, like I'm not your here's here's the Greek word translation guy. I I'm I'm the 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 communicator that's like 
the reason we're telling these old stories is because they didn't just happen back then, they're happening right now. They're still mm-hmm. happening today. And the only reason we keep telling them is because they help us see that it's still going on, that God is still interacting in our lives. Um, I met this, I tell, let me parallel that passage with a story. I, uh, when I got done with university, I ended up going to, there's this network of Bible schools called Torchbearer. And I ended up going to the one in England um, to study the Bible and just get out of the United States and live overseas. And most of the students there are like 18, 19, just like right out of high school. I was like 24 and I was like an old person. Uh, but there, there was like some people in their 30s, even more rare, 40s, 50s. And there was a couple ladies in their 60s as students, which is just like, yeah. And they became like our house moms. And one was this woman named Rita. Rita had, um, Rita had her, a long story, but like her husband had died of cancer. She was from this small town in Texas. And she was like, everywhere I went, I just reminded me of him. And even though her like grandkids were there and stuff, she's like, I just need to get out of town for a while. And so she went to this school and uh, she would often sit under the staircase and like write in her journal. And um, we'd talk. And I remember one morning I came and she was there writing and I, we were talking and just kind of catching up on school gossip or whatever. And I was like, what are you writing about? And she's like, well, I was writing a prayer for all of you students. And I was like, do you mind if I read it? And I, <laughs> this is my Bible, which I always have close to me, guys. And uh, <laughs> I actually have written what she wrote. Um, because it impacted me so much. And this was her prayer. She said, I pray for all these beautiful young people and tremble at the world they face, tremble for the joy, the sorrow, the glory, and the pain. But what a blessing their lives could be if they only knew how safe they are in God's hands. They could live with passion and abandon to him, not being bound up with success, money, fear of the future, fear of relationships, fear of failure. They could live freely and in such joy if they could only knew the truth about living. Give it to Jesus and then give it everything you've got. It'll be glorious and painful. You will get wounded in the fight, but you'll come back stronger than ever. And someday you'll look back and say, I do it all over again, Lord. It was awesome. <laughs> I, I, had a, uh, I had a moment, I've had many moments where uh, I... Scott, you're a four. Our life is a series of moments. <laughs> Good. Yes, yes. I, I've had a moment, I've had moments, and I'm sure a lot of you have, if you're listening or watching this, that uh, we found ourselves crying in a room by ourselves going, <laughs> what's going on? Like, God, are you even there? Um, Frederick Beekner says, I don't think our real question is, is God, does God exist? I think our real question is, does God exist in all of this? Like mm. in our lives, in the fabric of our lives. And uh, why I, I like that story of Joseph, you know, obviously like probably none of us have been sold into slavery. If you have, I would love to hear that story. Um, none of us became princes of countries things like that. But what happened in that story, the, the Benjamin part where he sees his younger brother, I see him like crying, like going into the other room and going, man, in my life, I've had so much loss. I've had so much loss. I mean, I know I got a killer job right now, but I'm seeing the life I used to have and I'm seeing the brother I never got to hang out with. 
and I'm seeing and like the offspring of my mom who I haven't seen in decades. And it just is like too much, like what the hell is going on? And then in just a couple chapters later or however many time passed, there's this other moment where he cries when he goes, oh, I see what's happening now. I see what's happening now. I never saw it the whole time, but I'm now seeing what's happening now. Like brothers, don't be ashamed. Don't you see what God is doing? And I, when, like, I see the parallel with Rita's story, like for her to be there after her husband died of a long, painful death of cancer. And for her to say like, you know, at the end of your life, you would go, it was awesome, Lord, I'd do it all again. Like to me, it, it, it helps frame the, mis the mysterious painful moment I find myself in and go perspective maybe just a few months away. Perspective may just be a little bit. There may be, and I would, my trust and faith is like, providence is working in ways that I don't really know or understand. And it's okay to find yourself in a room going, I don't get what's happening. But I think the hope, and I think what we can find in this community, communion of saints is to go, yeah, but there's there's another moment where tears will come out and, you'll, it, and they'll be different. They'll be like, oh, I see now. I see now. I didn't see it before, but I see now. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that, I think, um, as an artist, is the honest tension that I can point to. I think we've all felt cheapened by artwork or expressions that only give us the like, hey, it's going to be okay. Everything's going to work out. Because it doesn't always work out the way we, we think it will. But I, I think that life is, this, is, is these moments of in a room grieving the loss of all things. And then also in an unexpected other place, being joyous about how I didn't see that coming. Mm. And, uh, and I, I think that is what I want to be honest about. That is the authenticity I can speak or create to. That, at least that's what I hope to do. Yeah. Uh, as a, as an artist. And I think that's why we really appreciate art. I think that's why we love art. I think that's when we hear a song and we're like, oh, that's my song. What we're saying is like, somehow the artist lyrically and sonically perfectly portrayed what it's like to be in our own skin. And it gave us a way to express the truth of our lives. When we read a passage, hear poetry, see a film that stirs us, we're like, that's it. You yeah, you said it. Thank you. You said it for us. And there are, that's kind of what prayer is. I mean, prayer is prayer is helping get in touch with that like thing. I was like, that's it. That's what I've been trying to say the whole time. Thank you for giving me words or a song or an image for that. Um, yeah, yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was. It was not where you went is not where I was expecting you to go. Um, mm. <laughs> um, and, I, and I guess what I was thinking in my mind, I mean, it was on one hand, I was like, yeah, I mean, I, like I can resonate with what you're talking about in terms of um, beyond the kind of superficial, you know, he's, oh, like this is all God's hand. It's all going to work out right fine for me. Um, but I was also thinking about you know, I mean, like the blues, right? Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and and the blues can, I mean, they can do two different things, right? Some blues can can press through the suffering and then see anew on the other side. Yeah. 
gum blues um in some ways are like there's not much you keep pressing and there's more suffering right yeah. mm -hmm. um and that maybe sometimes we don't always sometimes there is no a new to see because your whole life is that right yeah yeah. And I was just, I'm curious what you think about, you know, I think about like uh, Harlem Renaissance artists mm -hmm. who are writing during Jim Crow era and they're doing beautiful images of, you know, um, lynchings and Jesus, right? Kind of, kind of blurred yeah. between the two yeah. Yeah. Um, in a way that they're not trying to offer that in a kind of transfigured way that somehow there's hope to be seen on the other side, but that, so I'm just curious about also for those that are just, you know, sometimes intergenerational suffering is just deep. And, and what does that mean to do art in that context? I'm not an artist. I don't think through these things normally. So I'm curious about your thoughts. <laughs> oh, come on now, Drew, on... We've, we've read your books. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I'm a storyteller. So I guess I'm an artist in that That's sense. That's great. That's but, great. Yeah. But, um, but I don't always think like maybe participating artist artistic communities in the kind of conversations that are alive and happening yeah yeah um i'm i'm not one who feels like uh everything has to like be wrapped up or like there's always going to be a positive outcome um i think there is a um, an absurdity and a randomness of life that that confronts a lot of our god talk um, and that's, and, and, and when I've, when, when you meet other spiritual leaders who have a place for that, for that paradox, I think mm -hmm. you're like, okay, yeah, I don't, I don't know if it's a, it's a, it's not a, it's not a solvable thing. It's just, it's just kind of the reality we find ourselves in. Um, I have, like, I have a son who has a degenerative eye disease that there's no cure for. And, um, I, I've done a t some talks and uh, about what, it, like, I, cause I've written, helped make a couple of books about prayer. And I, I started thinking about why people stop praying in their lives and really like, why you, why, why does it kind of go away? And I, my running theory is just like, there's kind of three things. Um, like one is like, you just, you kind of just don't know what to say anymore. Um, uh, so you don't know what the words are. I'm forgetting the second one right now, but one, one is like, you're like, is it all up to me? Like, if I don't say words out of my mouth in this room, will like things fall apart in another place. Like how much of this is up to me? How much is God's sovereignty? What is God's sovereignty? What is that even? And as, and, and then the limited reading I've done and, and listening out of all the things that are out there to read, it seems like there is no answer to that. And, uh, and I think there's a painful, uh, vulnerability that comes in adulthood, or it might come earlier when you, when something happens to you that you can't change. And that is, uh, I was talking to another guy, a, a pastor in Ireland, and we were talking about this and he was going, oh no, when I got out of seminary, I could have told you, we actually can prove God's sovereignty. <laughs> and then he's like, and then I had a son who is on the spectrum and has autism. And he's like, and, you know, th that changed the way I think of everything. Like, uh, it is at some moment in your life, you will experience some kind of vulnerability, vulnerability, weakness, something that you can't control. And it will confront a lot of your ideas about how the whole thing works. 
And I, the way that I guess I deal with like um, doubt or this wall, I think the great, I think a great metaphor was this in this movie, uh, the Truman Show, which the premise was Jim Carrey, the actor, uh, played Truman, who lived in a fabricated reality. It was a TV show. And then he discovers that it is and he tries to escape. And he's on this boat and he eventually on the ocean and he hits the wall. <laughs> it hits the wall of the of this like giant dome and he finds these staircases and, and then he leaves. And I I feel like in my faith, when I've hit like a wall of like, I don't know anymore, it's like I hit that wall. I hit the end of the world I created. And now I just have to find the entrance to the next larger reality. I would say what art and the artists you reference and stuff like that is going, uh, they're holding paradox, they're holding like hope and, and yet seeming hopelessness. They're holding this like the truth in front of us that seems like it's never going to change or never gonna get better. And in a way it's helping us find that wall it's helping us find the wall that we didn't know we made, but going, oh crap, I have only got this far. And this, and maybe that art becomes a doorway to go to the next larger reality. Um, that's, that's how I see the function of that art is. Um, you know, the, it's, people say good art is the one you can't stop thinking about. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the one that, that you still at night, you're like, oh, I don't like it. Usually you don't like it at first. You're like, I don't like that. <laughs> that doesn't, I don't like that at all. And then, mm. and then you get into why you don't like it because it's like excavating something in you. So yeah, I think yeah, I think I think those women and men who've kind of been able to confront or bring about those imagery that that just helps us see like oh yeah this is conf confronting a lot of things but maybe this helps me get past into the next reality or the next bigger viewpoint or perspective. Mm. What do you think about that? Did I just make that up? Does that sound <laughs> does that does that resonate? Yeah. You, want to you know what it? came to mind for me yeah. with Drew mentioning the Harlem Renaissance is um, William Johnson, who is a, a painter, yeah. mm -hmm. and he has, um, do you know his painting Fright? It, mm. It's of a family. When I when I saw Get Out for the first time, I thought of it. Oh, um, yeah. Because uh, in the same sense that um, uh, here you have a, a director who who knows all the cues and timing for comedy and then applies them to horror. Yeah. And we find that um, the timing of comedy and horror is actually very close together. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's why he's, it's Peel, isn't it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, who, who's able to um, provoke in that way. And um, uh, to compare that with, um, uh, he went on to do Us, and there's a series out at the moment called Then, have oh, I didn't know I didn't know he came out with the series at all um, uh -uh. I don't I don't think he has and Kat and I watched it, uh, just the preview and we went nup and part <laughs> of the nup was it it seemed um, it seemed and then went looking for some reviews and some people were talking about that uh, like it's almost a pornification uh, of yeah. uh, people's trauma Mm. and the the power of fright and the subtlety of these sideward glances of a family with a shopping bag next to them mm. and um there, there is no threat that you can see other than that it's called fright and and the same way that um get out kind of picks up on that as well initially at the start 
and again, it brings us into what you're um, talking about, Scott, in terms of uh, the role of the, the artist, because um, uh, art for what? Is, is art decorative? Is art um, something that uh, provides a, a, a deepening of one's soul yet doesn't question the, the systems that we're a part of? Um, have we forgotten that Wagner was played in gas chambers? Um, mm. uh, and the, the role of the artists in these moments, I mean, we're living through an unprecedented ecological crisis. And one of the reasons why I love your art so much is that uh, whether it's a focus on particular birds um, or the earth itself, how much the earth shows up, or when you chose this passage, I immediately thought of your work. Um, is it the sorrowful saint or the mm -hmm. yeah. sorrow-filled saint? Or, yeah, um, sorrowful saint. Would you talk us through the imagery? Um, and this is a bit of a challenge because for most people, this would be a, a, an audible experience rather than a visual one. Yeah. But um, what is that painting? And um, uh, I think, in fact, our mate Josh, who's uh, uh, listening in uh, live now, I, I saw yep. an aspect of that work on his wall in his home um, uh, before I ever saw the, the larger work. Yeah. Can you talk us through a little bit about how you're using the these um, images and in the larger context of what we're going through? The, uh, the Sorrowful Saint, I the initial painting, so I do a bit of like live painting, which is, you know, versus dead painting, but I'll, I'll make a, <laughs> I'll make a painting in front of people. So it's in a live setting. And I've done that for over a decade. Uh, this was, in, I did the original painting in Portland at a church called Imago Dei. I believe it was either like an Ash Wednesday service, but it was also paralleled with some something going on with race in America. And uh, my friend Leroy Barber, yeah. was, he was he was like preaching, and it was definitely about lament. And um, I'm trying to think, it was maybe um, it's so sad when there's so many names and cities to remember now. Yeah, um, but the a particular horror which highlights what goes on at the time. Yeah, and yeah. and it was just about, I think it was referencing either like the mother, the parent, but even just like the minister who, and so it's this, uh, it's this black minister whose hands are on his eyes and there's like tears, these big tears coming through the seams of his fingers and those tears are falling into a casket that is below him and they're filling up this casket and from that this like shoot is sprouting which is and then on the side of the casket it says uh i resurrect and like jesus being i'm i'm creating new i am the resurrection you know i i am creating all things new and so i i it was giving you know in that it was like here here's very much where we're at Here's very much the cost of this violence and this hate and sin that is this lack of love that is happening. Here's, here's our very lives. And um, yet part of our tradition, part of our faith is to go, um, you know, on the other side of death is a life that we don't expect. And so um, it's kind of bringing those things true through. So um, 
you know, it's awful. It's also referencing the passage in Isaiah where Jesus is referred to as, you know, the, the, the man of sorrow. Um, it's reference. It's just referencing that like life that we have these times of sorrow, that we have these deep griefs and, um, uh, yeah. So those are, are I I deeply appreciate that you haven't explained, but you've described and, and, and then, um, brought us into the references because yeah. um, there's nothing so awkward as when when an artist goes here's what it means <laughs> to yeah. which the, everybody else goes not to me not <laughs> to me yeah because that's one of the that's one of the abilities of the visual is that it, beca it, it becomes an excavation tool meaning it is pulling something out of you mm. so i have intention when i make something but to go that's what the meaning is uh is would be like ridiculous because it's like no 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 this is this isn't about what the meaning is it's about what it what it is exhuming from us uh, from our perspective what we see I, I I think about like seeing um you two you know Sunday bloody Sunday they were like it's about this but then after 9-11 they played in America and they were like this is your song now Aunt Bonna was like, this song is, this song is for you. Um, yeah, it, at the like, Super Bowl. At the Super Bowl, yeah. yeah. I hated that. You hated I it? Really, I did. <laughs> really, like, um, uh, so, so my family, and in fact, I think I know the pastor you're talking about um, uh, in Ireland, if it's somebody from Vineyard who's in Coleraine, which is a city that, uh, or the town that my dad was okay. born in. Um, uh, but I have family um, in Derry, and uh, um, uh, that, that song means so much in terms of... Oh, did Ireland get mad when he was, like, giving it to the United States? Like, here's this is for uh, you now. Well, it was also, I don't know if you remember this, um, Drew or, or Scott or um, dear listeners, but he opened up his um, jacket, and Bono's talked about it since, that he actually regrets the way that... But do you remember what was inside his jacket? The Stars and Stripes, Yeah. It was just like it was to, a little bit to too patriotic to feed into America's way of grieving being patriotism. Yeah, um, totally. And, uh, I just think was yeah, the, that's some very of the least prophetic stuff we've ever seen <laughs> from our brother Bonner. Yeah, yeah, that yeah, ab absolutely. Uh, I do think like the names on the sheets was pretty. BA, but Powerful. like, uh, uh, but yeah, all <laughs> now I'm like, yeah, that's very problematic, uh, in retrospect to have that flag. But isn't this interesting? Uh, but, but this but is I, art, right? Like, this, is, this is actually art. how but do thought, we respond? How do we process and, and how it impacts us? Yeah, absolutely. I thought it was just it, it was for me as an artist, I was like, oh, these the thing you make at one point can have a totally different meaning at another point, and yeah. each, each culture society tribe group will see it and be like this is this is what it means for us and i that that is that is one of the i don't know if it's a terror or just kind of like a you got to let it go but uh not that i even be known for my work but if i am whatever is most known and most like if, if anybody decides like i don't get to decide what the best work i ever made will be that's not something you get to decide. The ma the masses will decide that, or people will differ on it and stuff. So there's already this built in this where it's like you're not in you're not really in control of how it's all perceived. You just have to like make amends with yourself that you felt like it was the most honest thing you could say or do or represent. Yeah. 
and you're and you're proud of that or you'll stand by it um so yeah but yeah, i don't know no that's good that's good yeah, I have such deep uh, respect for folks who identify as artists. And I think some of it in for myself is, um, you know, there was a time I used to like write rap and rhymes and things like that when I was like young, right? Yeah. Like a long time ago. Yeah. And and then, you know. And if you become a patron, you can hear Dr. Drew Hart. <laughs> That's right. Dropping bars. Dropping bars, 16 bars for you. No, but. Um, <laughs> He'll send you a rap on your birthday. He'll send you right. a rap on That's, that's right. With your, with your name included. No. Um, <laughs> He'll work your name in there. Okay. Right. Um, but, but it's, yeah, I mean, it's the opposite. Immediately which is, Patreon just starts going through the room, That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and then and then drip drops right after that when they realize yeah. Yeah. what they're paying for. Oh, that but, was um, just Australian sarcasm. Yeah, and they're all disappointed. <laughs> That's right. Um, but like, since you know, the further I went through education and writing and dissertation writing and all that stuff, the less I think like. Um, like one of the things I've always said to myself, like, I'm going to start reading more poetry. And then I don't, I mean, I'll do it for like a little bit and then I'll stop. Right. Or, yeah. And yeah. I just think about um, just that connection to, um, and I do think, I mean, Jared made a, you know, like I, I, I tell stories, right. Um, yeah. I think that there's ways in which I'm still artistic in some ways, but not, but some of the ways that I've kind of let go of, or certainly are not as central to the daily rhythms of my life as they used to be. So I'm really curious about your process. Um, mm -hmm. You know, what, what does it look like for you to do art? What does it look like in your daily life? What's your process for going yeah. about doing your work? Um, I listened to the episode with Patrick Otuma. And if your mm -hmm. homie Patrick can't, who said you should read poetry just once every day, if he can't convince you, then I don't know. Because <laughs> um, that, that guy is great. Um, my, so mm, yes, I think uh, I, I could turn the camera around. I could show you my like drawing area. I have stuff on the wall. I have like things I should be working on. So um I, I there's kind of this so where I'm at now is like if we're going to get into the nuts and bolts of how I make my living I, I see it in like three avenues I'm a painter illustrator I sell artwork I'm making I become like a bookmaker and I hope to have a long career in that and then I'm also like a performing performing artist so I have like these kind of one-man shows that I have done and been developing and we'll see where that goes um so with the art stuff, I just, eventually I just came to terms and I actually was on a podcast. I've been on four podcasts this week, but like it, look at how important I am. No, Scott, I just, he, I, here's us thinking that we were special. <laughs> I just pushed we, we everybody. Had, we had no idea same. that we're just another number no, I just, for you. I just <laughs> pushed everybody to this week. Uh, no, but I, I talked to somebody and I was having to explain this. I'll say it more concisely now. I grew up at a time that, so I was trained as a teacher and an artist. Um, I went to, I was a high school art teacher for a while, but in art school, you were, you were said the best place you could end up is in like galleries and museums. And the way you will get there is never talking about Christianity. If you talk about Jesus or Christianity in a, in a non-sarcastic way, forget it, you're done. So I had this training in me 
that was always like, don't label me like a Christian artist. And I wouldn't label myself that way, way now. But I will say like, I have a particular, my tradition is the Christian faith. And I want to illustrate the spiritual journey. A few years ago, I finally just like came to terms that came to term. I was like, that's who I am. I'm never going to make it into MoMA and that's okay. You know, and I just said, this is what, this is kind of the stuff I want to do. So from what, what I'm interested in doing is creating a visual vocabulary for the spiritual journey. Like what are the things that we go through the processes, the seasons, the theological constructs, whatever, and how can we image that? Uh, I, I really, my running theory, and I find it to be true, is that our words are rooted in imagery. Like we have a language to explain what we're seeing externally or internally, our thoughts and feelings. And now our beliefs that we come to believe in often are, are rooted in our sacred texts. So they're rooted in words, which are rooted in images. And, and this comes back to like learning these kid images uh, so when we talk about beliefs, it's not just the words, it's the images behind those words. And if you've been given no images except for like cartoons and stuff, well, that's kind of your reference point. Like, I, I think this is most true. I, I don't think when people stop believing in God, they stop believing in the words. I think they stop believing in the images that inferred that were rooted, that the words were rooted into. Because you say you don't believe in God anymore. Tell me the God you don't believe in. And people will start <laughs> describing an image of God. And you're like, yeah, I don't believe in that God either. That's a horrible God. Um, <laughs> and and, and I, so I, I believe that actually any kind of path of transformation, you need to recognize and find the unhelpful image and replace it with something else. And so I just what I would like to do in my own small way is give an a, a image vocabulary that can help with this transformation, that can help with this process of belief. Um, and so that's just what I'm interested in doing. So uh, a few projects ahead of me, um, I've, I've, re I've in, not reinterpreted, I've interpreted the Stations of the Cross, which is an ancient tradition in the Catholic mm. and Christian church. I've done that a few and times. Scott, it was beautiful seeing um, Stations of the Cross around the world, including uh, yep. Leichhardt in Sydney, yep. Leichhardt um, Uniting Church, um, yep. where there's some wonderful people. Yep. Uh, having your stations um, there, that, that's incredible. Yeah. Um, thank, yeah, that's been amazing. So what, like not every church can hire an artist to be on staff. So I, I was like, well, what if I just help facilitate churches to have good art on their walls? Because a lot of them don't. If anything, they don't have anything. And if they do have art, it's probably not really good. So I'm like, how could I help facilitate communities of faith to put art on their walls? And then, and then there's some places like, where do we need to go? Uh, I have some I don't want to give away my secret projects, but you know, there's some things I'm like, if I image this, it would be helpful for the church. Um, so I should, I should try to do that. And I'm at a spot in my career where I have the, the means and time to do that. And so I'd like to make, I would like to dedicate myself to that. Um, I will say like one of the things I was just talking about this with Luke, our friend, Luke Norsworthy and my friend, Jason Miller, like I'm reading a few books about how we like uh, that we need to, that we're kind of switching our ideas about how to even conceive and think about God in the world right now. And none of them have pictures, you know, they're all just like thick, thick books. And I, 
I really want to, I've been kind of charting down like, because from my own experience about, yeah, I had to make this move from here to here, here to here. What would it look like to illustrate that and create an illustration guide or companion guide to all of these things that we're talking about, how we're changing and transforming. And um, that's, that's what I would like to be working on in the next year. And so I've just been kind of taking up. So these are the things I, and then just prayerfully, whatever comes up, whatever haunting comes through, I'm like, oh, but that one I need to do today. So <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm partnering this year with a nonprofit called Open Doors that uh, sheds light on the persecuted church. Um, they approached me through a friend and actually I'm really interested in what they do. I'm not about religious superiority. I'm not about like, if they're, if only Christians matter, anybody else being persecuted doesn't matter. You know, like that's not my MO, but like <laughs> I, I had, I had family members who were murdered in another country because of their faith. It's close to home for me. And I think it sheds a light on, Hey, like, because I think also it sheds a light onto the ridiculousness in America about liberties. Like you, like I was, I'm sorry if this is off color, but I was, uh, it's amazing to me that the people, the, the people who are most uh, hesitant to get a vaccination in this country are white evangelicals. And I was just musing, I was like, hey, during this pandemic, who's been the least helpful? At the beginning, it, the government was like, uh, the the, med the doctors were like, hey, everybody, if we just all stay in place for three weeks, we got it. And then people were like, no, you're taking away my liberties. Oh, my gosh, my faith. Oh, no, no. And so we didn't do it. And then we spent billions of dollars to get these vaccines. And they're like, okay, now we got these vaccines. Come and get them. And then it's the same people are like, no, you're taking away my liberties. I'm not going to do it. And I'm just like, these are the same unhelpful people through the whole thing. And they're mostly Christians. And, and, and uh, they're the same ones Christians. claiming then, to be persecuted, right? In yeah. the US, they exactly. are persecuted, right? They're like, and, and they're we're the being... same people who are like, we just need to trust God. And yeah. they've got all these guns. Like, uh, yeah, <laughs> like... yeah. So, and yeah. And then, and I'm just like, you're immature. Because actually Christians being persecuted are going to jail, like in mm. North Korea. Like if mm -hmm. you get found out to be a Christian in North Korea, you either immediately get executed or you're thrown into a work camp until you die. Like yeah. that sounds like persecution. Not like, hey, let's call up Kirk Cameron and sing some songs because California doesn't want us to. You know, like that, it just sheds light on the, the immaturity and the spiritual poverty that's really rampant in this country. And that mm. I don't have a hard time. So I, I was said yes to that to kind of just show a mirror <laughs> to my audience that's mostly in the U.S. to go like, mm. this actually is what's going on in freedom uh, and religious freedom in the world. So I got, obviously I'm dispassionate about that. Sorry, I was so monotone during that whole last <laughs> session. <laughs> Scott, we've, we've really appreciated finding out who, who our one listener was. So yeah, that's great. For taking that's the great. time to, <laughs> and if you're Keep uh, coming. willing, if you're willing, um, I'm sure people uh, might have questions. But we'll we'll end officially, and then this will this next bit will go up for uh, uh, those who contribute to the community. Yeah, uh, but I just want to say thanks heaps. Like thanks for your work. It, it's beautiful. Um, 
it's it's so nice to have um, uh, liturgical visual art that isn't cringeworthy, um, that is in conversation, not <laughs> yes. just theologically, um, but also uh, com in conversation aesthetically as well. Uh, so it's thank you for th things that we don't have to feel embarrassed about. Yeah, <laughs> that's a great compliment. I, <laughs> I don't want you to be embarrassed. <laughs> that's great. That's great. Well, thanks. And I, and I've, and the, I said it earlier, but thank you for the great stuff you guys are doing by hosting these conversations. I'm ecstatic to be in the midst of that great community of people. So thanks. The Inverse Podcast is proudly supported by you, the listener. And if you want to join the revolutionaries who are helping us have conversations about how this ancient text can still turn the world upside down, why don't you head over to patreon.com slash inverse.